I've found that over the years I've had to challenge the introvert in me and also challenge the writer in me. Last year, I spent a lot of time working on an essay that was quite scholarly. It was a lot of research and I had to interview people and it was for a particular journal. I didn't know whether I could pull it off, but I'm glad I did. I think what I'm trying to say is as a writer, you enter into the new terrain give it a go. It's exciting and it's scary. So keep on being that brave writer that you need to, because it's got recently got published and I'm just chuffed because it was just something that I normally don't do or write. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded. Along And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. We have something a little bit different on the podcast, and it's a panel of writers who all appear in an anthology, very tricky to say, of feminist fiction titled It's All Connected, published by Spinifex Press. Today we're going to meet three of the authors from this recently released anthology. Now the anthology is comprised of poems and short stories, and they create worlds within worlds. It includes stories that draw on traditions rewritten for our time. There are thieves and grandmothers, teenagers breaking out, dark caves to explore, and real estate to sell. There are mysteries from the grave, experiments that go wrong, a circus, an opera, families that break, and families that hold together. There are birds and animals and babies, and there is the pandemic. There is stillness and movement, closeness and distance. It's an eclectic range of authors and writing, all bringing their unique perspectives to storytelling as they each try to grapple to understand the past and meet the challenges ahead, daring to share their joy and pain, their fear and anger, their hopes and disappointment. So joining me today on Rights for Women, the contributors to It's All Connected, the anthology that I've just introduced, we have Angela Costi. Angela is the author of five poetry collections or books, including An Embroidery of Old Maps and New, published by Spinifex in 2021, The Relocated Arts Project, for which she was writer-in-residence at the former Kensington Public Housing Estate, received a national award for community innovation in 2002. In 2009, Angela travelled to Japan as part of an international collaboration involving her poetic text, A Nest of Cinnamon. She lives on Wurundjeri land. Her heritage is Cypriot. Welcome, Angela. Yeah, welcome. Lovely to meet you, Pamela. It's a joy to be here today. Thank you. Great to have you. Liz Murphy writes to feel connected. Born in Belfast, she now lives in Binalong in rural New South Wales. She has published 14 books, including nine poetry titles. Her latest collection is The Wear of My Face, published by Spinifex, which won the 2021 Poetry Big Press section of the 2022 ACT Notable Awards. Her other Spinifex titles are Two Lips Went Shopping, and the anthology, We Girls, Women Writing from an Irish Perspective. Welcome, Liz. Thanks for having me, Pamela. Lovely. Thank you. Great to have you. 
And we also have Susan. Susan Medallion has published three short story collections, all shortlisted for major Australian literary awards. A History of the Beanbag, An Unknown Sky and Feet to the Stars. Her two novels are The Art of Persuasion and Everyday Madness. The latest book is a collection of microfiction called Miniatures. She has a PhD in contemporary Australian women's fiction and has published on the subject in national and international literary journals. She has been a committed feminist since the 1970s and has helped to raise two feminist adult sons. Fantastic. Welcome, Susan. <laughs> Thank you. It's lovely to be here. It's great to have you all here. And the reason we're here, of course, is to talk about It's All Connected, which is this gorgeous-looking anthology from Spinner Press, which came out towards the end of last year. And I've been reading through this, and there's just some amazing writing in here and really thought-provoking pieces of poetry and short stories. So it's great to be able to talk about these forms on the podcast as well. I'm generally talking about novels, so really great to be doing this today with you. And to start with, I have done a little bit of investigation into Spinifex, and we have had a couple of Spinifex authors on the podcast before, but if maybe one of you or all of you could contribute to tell us a little bit more about Spinifex Press and its kind of mission and what it's doing and what it's publishing. So I suppose I could come in and say that, as you probably know, Spinifex Press has been going for at least 30 years. It's possibly 32 years now. They had celebrated their 25th and then their 30th anniversaries. And they have this big history of publishing amazing book by women. Well, I think they do have one male author now. But fiction, poetry, and a whole range of nonfiction, very important topics covered. Yeah, I can add a little bit to that. I think we're going to do a trio of information about Spinifex. The found partners are Suzanne Hawthorne and Renata Klein, and they've been champions of feminist literature, like Liz said, for well over 30 years. I came across their work in the early 1990s. They were working with international women's conferences back then. They were struggling at one point, but then they just kept on going, kept on growing. They have different streams than fiction and the poetry, but a lot of their authors have won major awards. I can talk a lot to the poetry stream, but I think others might talk a lot to the other streams. But to know that someone like Geordie Alberston, who's a, a well-regarded poet who suddenly passed away, was one of their first poetry authors and won a major award and has just gone on to win the Patrick White Award and over 15 collections in her own right. And she's in It's All Connected, so we come back full circle. Three of her unpublished poems are in this anthology and they're like sparkling with her talent. So yeah, there's a lot of well-known poets and I was very lucky to be one of the books of 2021. And I think the same with Liz and her latest poetry book. Having said that, one of my favourite people of all time, Zelda Tiaprano, her biography was published by Spinifex. They've done amazing books in terms of the women's liberation movement as well and elevating the voices of Australian-based writers that would maybe not given, be given a go in the wider publishing scheme. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that point, Angela. I think that's, that's such a good point that you make there at the end about those opportunities that presses, particularly like Spinifex, are providing for people who would normally not be able to have their work published perhaps. But Susan, have you got anything that you wanted to add to that about Spinifex itself? I think Liz and Angela have covered most of it, I just wanted to add that I do, I love the fact that Spinifex Press supports feminist writing and supports 
a range of genre and produces beautiful looking books as well. I think they take a lot of care with, with the look of the book. Yeah. And, and of the spine, the spine is always lovely and the pink and, and the editing, I think is really important part of the process because you're probably aware as writers that I think publishing companies more and more are putting money into marketing and less into editing. And I think it sometimes shows in published books. So I really appreciate that. This is my first time being published by Squinifex Press to have the story in this anthology, but I really appreciate the care that was taken with the editing process. I think all writers know that a good editor makes your work better. So I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I echo that. Absolutely. They do dedicate time to editing, which is fantastic yeah. and rare. Yes, increasingly rare. Yeah. And I'd just like to say Susan Hawthorne and Renata Klein, we owe so much to them. And um, I think they should win every award that's possible. They're <laughs> <laughs> amazing and they have done so much for literature yeah. in this country. Mm -hmm. And taking authors across to other countries, so they're not a big press, but they have this great distribution network. They go into, I think it's something like six or more countries mm. and their translations as well. Fantastic. It's amazing, isn't it? Really? And I guess that sort of feeds into the question, partly to what you were talking about, Angela, about how Spinifex is providing an opportunity for women of all diversities to be published, to have their voices heard. What do you think they have been going for 30 years? As you say, Liz, they're able to get writers' works into other countries and to have them produced internationally in a very competitive, sometimes mm. quite dog-eat-dog -dog industry that publishing can be with, in particularly in recent, say, the last decade, the decline in reading, the competition for people's time. What do you think accounts for the continuing success of Spinifex in that kind of environment? It's a really great question. This is my gut and I'm not a publisher. I've never been a publisher as such. But from the outside looking in and being one of, one of many that have proffered manuscript to them, I think there's a combination. I look at their authors in the past five or six years, for instance, and I see that a lot of them are accomplished. So they're not only looking for really good writing, but they're looking for people that have some track record and that can also do a little bit of the stuff that possibly that because they are at the end of the day to do rely on you to do some promotion of yourself, to have some sort of a track record, to be known in some sort of sphere. That's what I'm when I purchase their recent books. These, these are people that have been uh, traveling in the world of literature for a long time, or they're scholars, or they have some sort of connection with the wider stream in some way. It's very rare, I think, for a debut or a very fledgling writer to, to be looked at, I think, by Spinapix, unless it's an incredible read. That's mm -hmm. my take on it. And I think that's, they've got that edge in that way. They're known in that way. So. This is an anthology, as the subtitle suggests, feminist fiction and poetry. For people who might be listening who might not really have any experience of reading or being part of an anthology, could you maybe walk us through what's the process? Like, for instance, how were you first made aware that this anthology was going to be published or was a thought from Spinifex? What was the first step for you guys? Susan, we might start with you on that one. My story in this anthology has a bit of a kind of backroads history in that I have a manuscript which is a collaboration between me and a good friend of mine, a 
published poet called Carmel MacDonald Graham. So in the course of over a year, when Carmel in Melbourne was mainly in lockdown, Carmel has a poem in this anthology, she and I wrote a collaborative manuscript with Carmel's poems, my short stories, starting from the 1950s and going through to the 2000s, and it was partly autobiographical and partly looking at what was happening in the wider world, particularly as far as women were concerned. Through Carol Lefebvre, who I met at a short, two short story festivals, actually, and we became email friends, I asked her if she'd be interested in reading it and perhaps recommending it to Spinifex. And Carol read it, really liked it, but the editors were too busy with other manuscripts but suggested that if we had a single poem and a single story, we might like to submit it for this anthology. So that's how I became aware. And we got in quite late, both Carmel and I. But if anyone knows of a publisher who'd like to publish a feminist mm. <laughs> collection of poetry and short stories, yeah, it covers six decades. Mm. Oh, well. But it was, it's, it's really lovely to be included and for Carol to give us a bit of a helping hand to, mm. to alert it to the anthology and to connect us with the editors. So Spinifex already had this kind of idea for this collection and there was a call out for submissions. It was, it was well down the track, the anthology. Oh, okay. So Carmel and I would snuck in. Lovely. <laughs> for which we're very. <laughs> How about you, Liz? How did you come to be part um, of it? One of the things they did was send out an email to all their Spinifex Press authors. As far as I know, it was all the authors. I don't see it would have been anything different. And so that was how I was alerted to it. And so I was very grateful for that communication. And also I had this poem, which I thought, oh, what have I got? I'm not doing a whole lot of writing at the moment. It's a little bit up and down at the moment, but I thought, I wonder if I've got something that might fit or something that I could work on. Mm. And I had this poem and realized that it could fit. Needed a little bit of work, but yes, that was a nice incentive to look at it again. Great. It's always good to have that incentive, isn't it? To get something out and polish it up. How about you, Angela? Yeah, very similarly, I think there was a call out. There was an email sent and from Pauline, the editor, talking about the general theme. It's all connected. And I'm tending to write poetry lately rather than short fiction, but I have in the past. And I was working on a piece that that got into the anthology and I felt it really fitted the theme, this idea of being connected. And I submitted it and it got in. It's that a fantastic how... theme, isn't it? Because it's, there's so many different ways that you can write about and explore this theme of the connections between people, but then the connections that we have with the land and with each other and with all sorts of different things. So it's a fabulously broad topic, really. But then the pieces in the anthology all have this, it's an amazing thread that's going through it. I sat down and read quite a few in a row and you could really feel the theme running through that even though the stories yeah. and the poems were all very different themselves, yeah. I remember Pauline talking about she's had a, she has a very considered approach to the way that it progresses and I think it begins with the Jenna Woodhouse poem from memory so it begins with ancient mythology and then it it moves and I think that they really thought carefully about where all the pieces sat with each other throughout the pages. I find that really interesting. Which would be quite an art, wouldn't it? Yeah. All these, there's, it's a quite, quite a large number of writers in this anthology. And then to, yeah, juggle all those different pieces of fiction and poetry and to get that sort of thread happening would be quite tricky. Yeah, and I think it's very important too. There are a lot of readers who just dip in, like <laughs> any kind of 
collection, whether it's an anthology or a collection of poetry or short stories, they just step in. That's just the way they do it. And there are those of us who begin to read from the beginning to the end, even when it's a collection of separate people. And so when you have it really well compiled like this, you do pick up in all those threads and it unfolds beautifully, even though you're reading very different authors and very different pieces. I'd like to add to that too. I think the sequencing is crucial and editors put a lot of thought into it. And they obviously have heat here. And I always read an anthology or a collection in the order in which it's written or placed because I know that's part of its meaning. But to my horror, I have well-read friends who dip in and out, and it's partly a time thing. They think, oh, I've only got half an hour. I'll just read this story or a poem. But, yes, I'm very cross with them. I tell them that's not the right way to do it. Yeah, I think it's a time thing, isn't it? And I think... In some ways, the last few years, I've seen a bit of a resurgence in the popularity of and, and short stories because I think people are increasingly time poor and they are things that you can dip in and out of. But as you say, you're probably then losing something in the, in the reading it that way. But, yeah. Can we talk a little bit about each individual piece? So, Liz, can you tell us about the piece that you have in the anthology and perhaps where the inspiration came from for that particular piece? It was one of those works where a whole lot of different things happened, different things, different days, different times, and somehow they all started to add up. You're not always aware of that at the time, that's what's unfolding, but when you come back to it and think about it, they do, they do add up. And it was like all the dots were connecting to make a poem. And the main inspiration, or the at least the beginning of the poem, is inspired by a painting by another poet. I believe she, she lives in Italy, and her name is, I have to check the last name for the pronunciation, <laughs> so I don't get it completely wrong, Lily Arrow. And apologies to Lily, I'm sure I don't get it quite right every time. So they had seen, I don't know if you're familiar with the Eprastic Journal, but they have call-outs for responses to images. And on this occasion, it was Lily's painting, which was called The Poet. And I paid attention to it because I know Lily's name from, there's a whole ton of people who follow Billy Collins' poetry broadcast. And she is one of the poets who's there regularly. And I kind of went, oh, that's Lily. She's also an artist. And also, of course, the painting was really beautiful and striking. And that's where it started. And it fitted in with some incidents that happened in a cafe, and I also moved through the references to the pandemic because at the time my late husband was on dialysis for a number of years and pandemic affected us very differently because, because we had to do essential medical things. We didn't have the feeling of being so locked down, but we were seeing other things that other people might not have, like driving along the roadside almost 100 kilometers from Canberra. We went to Canberra three days a week. And so we were allowed out of that. <laughs> and on these really quiet, it was like going out for a Sunday drive every time. And and then because I was no longer allowed into the dialysis clinic with him, I'd just have to drop him off and I'd go straight to a nearby cafe and have breakfast and spend my time writing, which is very nice. But I could see the cafes had just opened again. They had skeleton staff and were very few people there. And all the people who were there at any time would have been doing something that passed as essential. So all of those things. This is, I'm wondering whether we have time just to hear an excerpt of your poem, Liz. That would be fabulous if you would like to read a little. Sure. So just reading the beginning of that poem. The poet. A photographer makes a study of the poet 
Walt Whitman. At a future time, an artist makes a watercolour and ink drawing from this image, frames it, hangs it in a cafe. A poet arrives at this same cafe for breakfast, sits at the back table under this Walt Whitman. She eats and writes and thinks. In deep thought, she rests her chin in her hand. A smiling man strides towards her. I'm sorry, I just have to tell you, you look exactly like the picture behind. She turns to see, is surprised, even though she has taken notice of this portrait on many occasions. Oh, you again, Walt always says. <laughs> she is also pleased, and she says, I'm trying, ironically, to do the same thing here. Right. Fantastic. Yeah, and it was really interesting to hear that after you talking about how it came, how it came into existence. So, yeah, yeah. that was lovely. And the poem moves through time too. And I guess you get that. I realise you get that from the that first section that it's going to move through time because you mentioned the future really early on, and I think in the second line and things that have already happened. So it's back and forth. Lovely, Angela. Can we flip over to you and the piece yeah. that you have for the anthology? S similarly to Liz, mine I think stemmed from the. So I'm. I live in Coburg. Coburg's next to Brunswick. People don't know Coburg, but they know Brunswick for some reason in Melbourne. And we had, as people are aware, we had as months of confinement and also curfews. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I noticed two things were happening, which fed into the writing of this piece. One was women were walking at night alone in Coburg, despite the fact that not that much before COVID, there were a series of random attacks, which were quite serious, around Coburg and Brunswick, but women were walking at night, and there's something to be said about that. And then I also noticed something that I really loved, and that is that people were wearing pyjamas during the day, and I love my pyjama wardrobe. I extended it, and it was a joy to wear silly things. On, on. So that's. I'm happy to read a paragraph. Love that. That would be great. It's four paragraphs down, and it'll just be a couple of paragraphs. And I'm sorry, there will be some rude words. That's absolutely fine. I do a warning um, at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. There are others like me, middle-aged women, leaving unscraped dishes in the sink, soiled soccer kits on the floor, adult fathers to pee in their pants. I count at least seven of us. We're growing by the night, each of us wearing a silly animal, designs brave enough to sleep. Across my pyjama top, my lipstick poodle is cavorting with the night breeze, alive to the triggers of insomnia. There's a woman with purple and pink zebras, another, with a penguin parading as Santa. We don't mingle, we keep to our regulated distances. One or two women give me a nod as if we're soldiers at the front line. These steadfast streets encircling my house I dearly love with ambivalence as a mother loves her children. Each house I pass offers its personality without discretion, spilling their emotions like passion fruit tendrils as I walk past their open doors, naked windows, unstable gates. Never before have I come to know the intimate details of bedroom habits. The scenes and poses a movie will edit beg a gasp or a sigh from each of us. And there are those houses overwhelmed by screens, zooming or avatars wrestling reality, 
where the bedtime story is survival of the game's console. Shouts of rebellion and screams of anguish are no longer muffled during these months of reinventing the home. Thank you, Angela. It's very powerful. Thank you for reading that. It's excellent. It's an extraction from truth, so I'm not like my poetry. It's emotional truth and there's some truth in there. When you were writing that, when you sat down, obviously you have these vague ideas of what you're going to write. How did that piece evolve for you from that original idea of women walking in the street during COVID to getting it to that point? Obviously, there's a lot of iterations of that piece of writing, but can you talk a little bit about the evolution of that? Yeah, it's, it actually started off being a poem and the poem was a series of tight images. And I felt that, yeah, I felt that when I came back to it again, I was writing more and I was writing more and it's evolved into a piece, I suppose, which, which is, has some poetry in it, that hybrid sense of what a short yeah. story is. But yeah, I just think it just kept involved. You go back to something and sometimes it begs you to be a bit more than the form you originally think it's going to. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, interesting. How long would you have worked on that for? Just roughly. Roughly? I can't say in hours. I think over the space of three months, mm. but certainly not full time. Just a piece of some half an hour here or an hour there or two hours there. Susan, can you tell us about the piece that you've had in the anthology? Sure. So it's a short story called Educating Nanette. And I don't usually write autobiographically, but this is heavily autobiographical, and it comes from that collaborative manuscript I told you about earlier. So this is the decade is the 1970s, and I first went to university in 1969, and I came from a family that didn't read, that didn't really value education. And the story is about a young woman who's going to become a feminist but is not there yet, and it's also a story of female friendship. So this is the beginning. The Sunday morning drive had been a long-standing ritual for Mr. and Mrs. Mullins and their daughter Nancy, who, at the restless age of 13, renamed herself the more sophisticated Nanette. Mullins would have to wait, she thought, until she married a Smith or a Jones. She also told her parents she had too much homework slash had to study for a test slash had to go to the library to join them on this family outing. She didn't tell them that she couldn't see the point of their meandering through different suburbs that all looked the same. The bland brick houses, the immaculate gardens, men mowing lawns or washing their cars, prim little girls playing hopscotch on driveways, and boys doing stupid wheelies on the road. The only moment, the enduring moment, that had wiped out her resentment, the tedious views, her mother's backseat driving, her father singing along to the radio, tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree, for goodness sake, was her glimpse of the university tower, poised elegantly above a lake. And the story goes on to describe the tutorials and the lectures, and my first tutor at university was Dorothy Hewitt. And she wow. used to change... I know, it's amazing. She used to chain smoke and... We would watch it for fascination. The ash grew longer and longer. And she wore these see-through caftans. And for a girl like me and Nanette in the story, this was a revelation. And she would pontificate about writing as anguish and writing as melancholy. And I would sit there utterly stu stupefied. It was wonderful. I was very lucky to have her. She was, I can imagine, very self-dramatizing, very theatrical. But 
utterly enthralling. Now, I got a real sense in that story of the evolution of the character and we're moving through time very quickly, but really yeah. capturing the real essence of, of the story is about and just her kind of opening up to the world and becoming an adult mm. was really lovely. Yeah, short story writing is my first. I went to the dark side and wrote two novels. But, yeah, I think I'm a much better short story writer than I am a novelist. I didn't start writing novels because I thought you're only taken seriously as a writer. As a fiction writer, if you write a novel, I just had an idea I wanted to develop. I'm going back to short stories. That's my first love. And in the Australian publishing industry, publishers increasingly publishing single author collections has been a real resurgence in the last oh, 10 years or so, which is fabulous. There has been, um, hasn't there? Do you think that's partly because of people being more time poor and wanting to read shorter? How would you account for that, Susan? The publishers who are publishing short story collections, I think, yes, sure, they can see there's a market for it. But I think, in my experience, there are people who, um, who understand the value of short story writing, who understand that it's not just a kind of truncated version of a novel, but has an entirely different aesthetic and it's very, it's about the art of suggestion that it's actually, it takes a long time to write a short story that you're happy with. And I think a lot of publishers are now appreciating the short story in its own right. I'm the co-director with Anna Solding from Midnight Sun in Adelaide of the Short Story Festival and we've had six of them now. We, the last one was in Perth and it's going back to Adelaide this year so we alternate between Adelaide and Perth. And, and that's really, you can see the resurgence of interest in the number of people who come and who actually buy books, which is wonderful. So we're doing our best too to boost the profile of the short story. And there have been some fabulous collections come out in the last five, six, seven years. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I really enjoyed Carol Lefebvre's Memorations collection, actually. Oh, it's one of my favorite, favorite collections of yeah. short stories. It's and the new one, The Tower, is also wonderful. On my radar, on my list. <laughs> Liz, can you talk a little bit about being of the writing part of the writing world and how you've come to be where you are now in terms of, of your writing life? Okay. You've already mentioned that I have 14 books out and they're all different kinds of books. I have five of those are anthologies of different kinds. So three literary anthologies and a couple of community projects. I was very interested in community arts. And really, I started off as a visual artist and fell in poetry when I started commuting from Bynalong to Canberra, that 100-kilometer trip I didn't have. And also working a different kind of work with long hours and stuff, I wasn't able to do the painting that I used to do. So I started painting with words, scribbling in notebooks and so on, just having a lot of fun with that. And And then I became more serious about that and started to have individual poems published in journals and so on. I thought, this is not only fun, it looks like something's happening. And I got to really love it and followed through. And that thing of being published, first of all, in different kinds of journals, it's always very exciting. And maybe newspapers in the days when lots of newspapers published poetry. I think there's only a couple of newspapers, that's the Australian and the Canberra Times, which still publish poetry as far as I'm aware. And and then you might get picked up in an anthology, and the anthologies have played a very important part in a lot of our writing lives because that was extra special. We were more substantial, it seemed. It was often a bigger print run. They got out and about. They, all they would be distributed like other books. And so they made their way into the world even more than some literary journals might. 
Mm-hmm. And, and it always felt extra special to be selected for an anthology. So it boosted your confidence and got your name out there a bit more. And it also connected you to a whole lot of other writers, which is really, and introduced you to other writers as well. I think that's a very important part of anthologies, whether it was set up that way or just the way it happens. And I was lucky enough to be invited into a project where there were six slim volumes published. It was a Canberra-based project, and I was one of six poets. And likewise, I was noticing the anthologies and enjoying them and being published occasionally. And then I got an idea for an anthology myself, and that was my first book, She's a Train, She's Dangerous, Women Alone in the 1990s. And I wasn't alone myself, but there were a lot of conversations, friends and colleagues at that time. And I thought, I think maybe we should be writing about this. And that evolved to mean mm-hmm. different things when the book came out. And that's pretty much where it started. And I was fortunate enough to have some more poetry collections and crazy enough to do another couple of <laughs> anthologies because <laughs> they on some amount of work. And it's not surprising that each one got thinner as I went. <laughs> I can only imagine it must be a huge amount of work. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. the first volume was Polonius Press, and Phil McKenzie was the driver of that and gave six of us a great start. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. How about you, Angela? How have you come to evolve into the place you are now with your writing? What have been the major things for you along the way? So I think one of the sort of the things that helped me along the way was I enrolled in the professional writing and editing course at RMIT in 94, left my job and just thought, no, I'm going to, I want to. And I, so I worked with some of the great writers there. We spoke, Susan said Dorothy Hewitt and I just, wow. I had Peter Murray, an incredible playwright, was one of my, she was amazing, one of the, the people that inspired me as a teacher. And the other one was Anya Warwick's, had it for a couple of years. It was a great time, 94. and. One of the things that's helped me along the way, because for me, 94 was when I began to say, look, I'm wanting to be a professionally engaged writer and share my writing with the world, no more just for diaries. But having said that, 94, there's been a lot of rejections. There are those acceptances, but along the way, there's a lot of rejections, a lot of declines, you know, if you're going for a grant to help you fund a manuscript, et cetera, et cetera, journals. That's it's quite a competitive process. So what I have done is I've got, I call it a document. It's called a writing story. And in this document, it just documented every place that my writing has found a home and what that looks like. And I looked at it today and I thought, well, 94, I did get things published and it was the Australian Multicultural Book Review and well, Visible Ink and a few other journals. And I think that's held me in good stead. That's because there are idea to keep that yeah, And I think writers do because especially if you don't have a website, I don't have a website. I have a Facebook artist's page and I post on that, but I, I don't have a space where I can document my very beginnings to what's happening for me now. Yeah, and yeah, I think a combination of being in poetry groups as well or writing groups and being having a sense of community around me. Even if there's incredible challenges in my life, I know that, for instance, I need to rock up to this group because we've all shared some writing and mm-hmm. let's continue in one way or another. That's held me in good stead as well. It's so good to have that support, isn't it, from people who mm. understand the process and also the ups and downs of the industry. As you say, there's acceptances, but there's also rejection, which can 
sometimes hit a little harder than other times. Yeah. And I don't know how the other writers feel, including yourself, Pamela, sometimes you feel so strongly that you're going to get this acceptance and it's so random. You might get an acceptance from another door open, so to speak. Well, that door that you thought was going to open quite widely is closed. So it's just interesting to look back at this document and see. Oh, that, that's mm. quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. You do have to have self-belief, not to the point of self-delusion, but we do all get rejections. I've just had one which broke my heart, but I'm going to pick myself off the floor and try again. Now, how yeah. would you describe where you're at now, Susan, in terms of you said you have written novels, you're now back at the short story, your mm. love of the short story. How would you describe your evolution as a writer? from where you started to where you are now? I've been incredibly fortunate because my husband, I call him my patron, when I said I wanted to write fiction and I had a very demanding job and he said, okay, go for it. I'll go out and earn the money. And, and so he's retired now. But that's that gave me the time and the space to write full time. And I know that most writers have to have a day job. So I've been incredibly lucky and that's enabled me since 2006 to publish six books with other things along the way, stories in journals and so on. And look, I do think it's about finding the right reader for your work and there are lots of things that are outside of, they're outside of writer's control. We can't control who's going to read it. We can't control market for some publishers think you're not commercial enough all these things yes i am going to return i'll say the microfiction which is my last book that came out last year published by night parrot press which is a wa publisher they set up about three years ago and they only publish anthologies of flash or micro or in my case a single author collection that was so much fun just sitting down, write a 300-word story or a 200-word story, and you have the satisfaction of completion in a way that you don't when you're slogging away at a novel or a collection of short stories. But I am going to go back to short stories. That's my first love, and you'd only have to walk outside the door and you'll find something to write about. When people say, where do you get your ideas from? I always like Jeanette Winterson's where she says, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You got circled up with people asking her that question. She said, I get my ideas from inside my fucking head. Oh, yeah, I like that. But Susan Sontag says, writers must pay attention to the world. And it's true. I get into the lift in our apartment complex and there's a new voice telling us second floor. And I think, oh, that'd make an interesting story. What's happened to the old voice? Who is this interloper? This woman whose accent is different. Life's endlessly interesting. And even... I know, I think that's what short story writers often do. They can make the warm seem interesting on next or if they're really good. Yep, my next collection is tentatively entitled First World Problems. <laughs> Great title. Yeah, fantastic. We've been chatting for a while and it's been fabulous. Could talk for hours, but I do want to finish up in a minute with each of you perhaps share a tip that you would give to maybe any aspiring or emerging authors or any authors out there who are listening about either writing or publishing or whatever. But just something that I would like to ask all three of you as people, as writers who write poetry, short stories, Susan, you mentioned you know, that sometimes you will approach a publisher and your work might not be seen as commercial enough, being published with smaller presses perhaps. 
What do you think is important in general for writers out there to understand about the writing life on one hand and writing what you know comes from you and what you want to explore and what you want to write about versus the sort of demands of the publishing world? How do you balance those things when perhaps if you write something that isn't mainstream, you know isn't really going to be jumped at by a commercial publisher, for instance, how do you balance those things and then keep moving forward with your writing and having that self-belief that you need, whether it is with a larger or a smaller publisher? Liz, what did what would you say to that? I don't think about the commercial side of it at all because I write poetry mm. and we're in Australia. Difficulty, yeah. so it doesn't come into it. So, it, in a way, it just simplifies everything. Yeah. My more significant collections and my more significant books, I think they're stronger books and they're also happen to be bigger books and very beautifully public produced. Our spit of express books, it's the We Girls Anthology. Two lips when shopping, and I the word my fate. So, if I could choose, I'd have spin effects publish all my books that only I could do work that was they had enough <laughs> space to publish all of us and everything that we do and that's of course not realistic so I'm very open to trying different things and I've also had the great fortune to have books published by a couple published by a collective that was Island Press Collective I don't think they operate anymore but that was I got invited into that with the first book and that was a marvelous opportunity I had to seek funding for the printing costs those kinds of compromises but it was really marvelous and I also have had three chapbooks. People see them as chapbooks, but often they're <laughs> as, as solid as anything else. Published Press Press, which is Chris Mansell, another poet. So many poets publish other poets, mm-hmm. and hats off to them would be lost without them in many cases. Susan Hawthorne is one of those from Spinifex Press, a poet herself, among other things. And so I had these wee books published. I had a big gap between full collections. But in the meantime, I had three lovely chat books published by press, and that kept me going for a while. So I think being open and just finding other ways to do it. And at the same time, I had a lot of pressures in life, and I couldn't do the writing that I really wanted to do, what I thought I really wanted to Small little blocks of time, very interrupted. And so I went back to my origins, which was writing very small poems, and wrote a whole heap of my micro poems, which are mainly published in those. I adapt. I'm a woman, so I adapt. They reckon we've got good brains for adapting. <laughs> We're wired to adapt. And so I just adapted, adapt. And I have to just keep on going as well. Yeah. But it's important to talk about the rejects, I think. I think it's really good you both brought that up. There are a lot of writers who don't discuss those. And I think it gives a warped view to newer writers coming up. I'm always very open about it because I think it's because I don't care. <laughs> but also, I think it's important for other people to realize that it doesn't just all happen. We all have these things to work through. Yeah, good point. Susan, any thoughts on that? Quick, quick advice to people who want to write, emerging aspiring writers. And I, I know just about every writer says this, but read. Be a reader. That You learn from reading. You learn humility. You learn tricks. And you just learn about the, the many and glorious possibilities of story and language. I always read my work aloud so I can hear whether I think the rhythm's working. You can hear inadvertent repetitions, stuff that you can't see on the screen. In terms, and it, different things work for different people. Some people like 
writing workshops. I don't. So I show my work to a couple of trusted readers, people who are well-read and who will give me honest and constructive criticism. You don't show your work to someone who's just going to gush and tell you how wonderful it is. I think it's important to, to actually check the websites of publishers and see the kind of kind of books that they publish. Some publishers won't take poetry, some won't take short stories. So don't waste your time and make sure that you follow the guidelines. There's nothing more irritating for a publisher if you don't follow their guidelines and don't harass them with emails. Don't, don't write to them and say, I sent you my story two months ago. I still haven't heard. It is a waiting game and it is. And Liz, I absolutely agree. I think we need to talk about rejections because, yeah, you don't want to create that impression that it's easy. It's not easy. It's a tough industry. It's a very tough industry. I concur with everyone. I find because it's been interesting for me as well. You talked about or what's the, the, there seems to be a tension as well between wanting to write what fuels you as a person and as a writer and not be worried about the commercialization associated with that. And that's where I sit with it more than I want to write something that's going to make me this sense of what the market wants. And then there's that tension of wanting to be part of the literary community or wanting to be part of something like it's all connected. So that tension between the isolated working writer and that other part of me that wants to be part of the family of sorts. I've found that over the years I've had to challenge the introvert in me or, and also challenge the writer in me. Last year I spent a lot of time working on a re, on a essay that's was quite scholarly. It was a lot of research and I had to interview people and it was for a particular journal. I didn't know whether I could pull it off, but I'm glad I did. It took a while. It wasn't my default position, which was normally I write the poetry or the short fiction. (laughs) I think what I'm trying to say is as a writer, you enter into the new terrain, give it a go. You never know where that, and it's exciting and it's scary. So keep on being that phrase writer that you need to, because it's got recently got published and I'm just chuffed because it was just something that I normally don't do or write. Yep. But it felt like I needed to write this. Yeah. So yeah. you're pushing yourself into pushing your mouth yeah. out a little bit. And yeah, and that would probably be my advice mm-hmm. is to enable, encourage yourself to do that. Uh-huh. See what unfolds. <laughs> I, I remember what I was saying. Yeah. It was about persistence. And a friend of mine, a writer friend of mine, just had a novel published. And she told me she had nine rejections before she found a publisher. It is a question of matching your work to Peter, who finds it on their desk. And, you know, what Ulysses was rejected 29 times. Mm. Can't remember. 59, whatever. <laughs> it was, it was a lot. We've massively successful books that had multiple yeah. rejections prior. Yeah. So I agree. Persistence is really important. Yeah. Any other final thoughts for listeners? Please? I think. Up and Angela putting yourself out there and raising the bar with the challenges for yourself was a big thing for me to approach Spinifex Press with the We Girls anthology. And I was very fortunate to have just this isn't why I got the book published, they're very discerning, but I had just started working as a publicist for them. And so I had met them in person, and that certainly made it a lot easier to say, I've actually got this idea for a book. And but that was even though I had started working for them in recent times, it was still a very big thing to approach such a professional publishing house. And of course, I don't mean anyone else is not professional, but they were more even those earlier days. They were so established and so successful, 
and doing such an amazing job and the opportunity to get have my books published by them and also for them to go out into other countries, not just with the Pound Books Express. It's really tremendous. And they also do wonderful launches. And the way they kept going during the pandemic, they took their launches to Zoom and they're still Zooming with the launches, which I think is wonderful. It's a little silver lining. <laughs> On the pandemic cloud, that where it's possible, a lot of literary events and um, uh, things like launches, thanks to SpinFX in this case, are still happening by Zoom and we can all access them wherever they're being held. It's fantastic. I think that's been one of the pluses, hasn't it, that's come out of COVID. People have become a lot more au fait with Zoom and doing things online. And I think it's given access to people in regional areas too, or if you're in a different state to where a book is being launched, sometimes it's great that you can still attend the launch through the wonders of Zoom. It's been my experience in the last couple of years, and none of we three writers are in, shall we say, the first bloom of youth. But I think there is definitely an ageism in publishing. I'm 71. And I just noticed more and more publishers publishing. And I'm not against young writers, but they they seem to, they're often more marketable. Particularly in commercial fiction, I would agree with you, Susan. Yeah. But if you look at, often if you look at prize lists or short lists or whatever, I think it's becoming harder for older women. And when you look at writers' festivals, the demographic is still women over 50. They're the people who read literary fiction and poetry. They're the people who buy the books. They keep yeah. the industry. So I've got a bit of a romp about ages. A number of my friends, writer friends, have commented on this too. I don't know. What do you think? What do you, Liz and Angela, do you think there's a trend? Or am um, I just... No, so as you were talking, Susan, I had a vivid recollection of being an audience member, and I'm 50 plus, an audience member, and there were a lot of middle-aged to older women in the audience and we were at a very poetry event that was being live streamed. The audience access was online and in person, thousands of people. Yeah. 14 poets. And not one of the poet was an older woman. And yet the audience was yeah. comprised of older women. Mm. And, and it's quite, I was shocked. Mm. I was shocked and saddened at the same time. And uh, that's why we do need spin effects. I was on a panel with Carol Lefebvre at last year's Short Story Festival in Perth and Carol told me someone came up to her afterwards and said she was very wise. (laughs) As an older woman, I suppose that's a compliment. But I wanted to ask Liz if you had experience of not just necessarily personally, but do you think there is increasing ageism in the publishing industry? hadn't really thought of it that way, but of course. (laughs) Like we always having to keep women's names out the front. It's the same with as we get older, having to work harder as older women in any context. Yes, so it was a really good thing to raise, Susan. Thank you. And I feel very fortunate that I mix with all sorts of ages and that's a really lovely thing. But when I go into places like, so I go into Canberra a lot, that's like big, we have a lovely little culture, cultural life developing in this tiny village of Bailalong. But Canberra is my go-to, have a good relationship with Canberra. And we go to that poetry thing on Monday nights, I go in as often as I can. And it's a great mix of, of poets in there. But there are quite a bunch of us in this age group. And I would say, just off the top of my head, most of us are being published by small publishers and poets who publish other poets. Yeah, be some exceptions. 
But then there aren't that many publishers who publish poetry anyway. We're often very, I'd say most of us are probably very excited to see younger writers supported. Absolutely. It's wonderful. We don't want them to have, we don't want a repeat of what happened to us as women. I remember in the 80s, all of a sudden, women were being published, generally speaking, for the first time. There was a whole heap of women's, women authors being published, and it was very exciting. And really, it shouldn't have been. Of course, it should have been happening all along. But when it finally did happen, it was exciting. And we don't want the young, younger generations of female writers to have to go through that. So it's a great thing that's happening. But yes, we need to be still in the picture too. We're still doing great work, aren't we? That's our funny thing. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just added very quick. I would like it to not be either or that we are able to integrate and have this inclusive environment and not feel we have to stop because we're a certain age. Yeah, Yeah, that's a tragedy. No, definitely not. It's been so lovely to chat to you and about all sorts of things. And congratulations on the anthology and on your fabulous writing achievements as well. And every, I know what, I definitely want to make sure people find out where would they be able to get a copy of It's All Connected and find out more about Spinifex and about each of you. All good bookshops and the Spinifex Press website. Okay, excellent. Yes, yeah, Spinifex has a great website. I've been perusing yeah. it and there's so many fantastic books on there and lots of information too. So definitely check that out. Thank you to Pauline Hopkins for doing such a beautiful book and having us all in it. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you so much, Susan, Angela and Liz. It's been a pleasure to chat to you and all the best with your future writing endeavours. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Pamela, for having us. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>